I hope you're praying for Father Paul and Lissa. He's, they're both, I think, quite sick. And, and that you have been praying for me, especially for my wife and kids. I'm a much worse patient than Father Paul is. So even though we're both sick, I need your prayers more than he does. And my family needs prayer more than either he or I do because of how I, I, re, I resort to my worst self when, when I'm sick. But I'm, I am doing better. So those of you who have prayed, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I am safe. It is safe for me to be here. I mean, at least as it relates to the virus. I don't know. In other ways, it may not be safe. But in that way, I have doctoral clearance and so on. I want to talk a bit about the difference between magical and mysterious thinking. And beginning with this story of Jesus and the announcement of his ministry, the synagogue in Nazareth. Whenever we read the Gospels, read stories of Jesus, or we imagine his life, there, there are two mistakes we commonly make. And they're, they're both rooted in what I'm going to call magical thinking. They seem to be opposed to each other, but in fact, they're just sides of the same coin. The first mistake is that Jesus is God, doing what we cannot do for us. Jesus is a kind of surrogate for us. We can't do what needs to be done. Jesus does it for us. And all we have to do is believe that he's done it for us. And God will count it as if we've done it. And so we reap the benefits that are rightly his because we believed in him for doing what we could not do. And you can see that that's a kind of mechanical, magical way of thinking, right? That we can't actually do it, but we're going to reap the benefits anyway, because Jesus as a stand-in does it for us. So even though there are limits to this, this metaphor, and there are risks in using it, I want to suggest that in that way of thinking, we're imagining Jesus like a surrogate. We can't have the baby. Jesus has the baby for us, and then gives it to us. And surrogacy itself, of course, is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. So I don't, I don't mean to disparage that at all. But there is a way of thinking about Jesus as a stand-in for us in which God's work is impossible for us. And so Jesus stands in, does what we cannot do. We still reap the benefits because God counts it to us. The other mistake, common mistake, that seems to be its opposite is that Jesus is our model or he is our midwife, and we're the ones who are supposed to be doing everything we read about him having done in the Gospels. So in this, this way of thinking, if you read that Jesus walked on water, you should be able to walk on water. If you read that Jesus healed every sickness, you should be able to heal every sickness. So that Jesus becomes a kind of sketch, his life becomes a kind of sketch of what your life should be. He did what you can and should do. And if you just have faith, you will have the same success that he has and had. One of my, one of my favorite stories, a dear friend of mine, he and his wife were giving a gift to his grandfather, he's close, with his grandfather, his grand, I think it was like his 80th, 85th birthday, something like that. So it was a, it was a big celebration. They're giving gifts to him. And when, when they, my friend and his wife, presented their gift to, to the grandpa, he started crying, and he's such a sweet man. And again, I don't, I don't mean to disparage him any more than I disparaged surrogacy, but you'll see why I'm making that qualification. So he's crying, and he says, oh, I love this so much. I'm, I'm so... 
blessed, I'm the luckiest man who ever lived. And then he thought better of it and said, well, except for Jesus. Now you should have laughed right there. (laughs) Jesus was not lucky. I mean, you know his story, right? I mean, he's born into refugee status. He dies as a criminal. And in between there, his life is mostly hidden from view in a forgettable fishing village. Once he is noticed, his life, the short span of the life that he lives in public eye, he's constantly met with pressures of all kinds. There's nothing about Jesus' life that was lucky. He dies on a cross outside the city, forsaken by virtually everyone. So what would make someone say, I'm the luckiest man who ever lived except for Jesus? Well, I I think it's because we've imagined Jesus' life in ways that drift free of what's actually in the text. So even though we know that Jesus wasn't lucky, I mean, that he's born and has to flee into Egypt when he's still quite young, that his life is lived under enormous pressure, that he is tempted to to the fullest extent of bearing that temptation, that he's betrayed, that he's killed, we know that. And yet I think we, at some other level, drift into this, what I'm calling magical thinking, which is that Jesus' life was a life of victory after victory, grace after grace, and that he essentially moved from miracle to miracle. Now, some of you may not be aware of this, but Tulsa, historically, Tulsa is kind of the center of a way of being Christian that very much focuses on the victorious successes in Jesus' life. And if you don't know anything about that, count yourself lucky. Not as lucky as Jesus, but count yourself lucky. <laughs> but, but here, there has been a way of talking about the Christian life that emphasizes Jesus' miracles and tells us we should be experiencing the same kind of success, that we should be moving from miracle to miracle, from grace to grace, from glory to glory. And even though at some level we know that isn't true, there's an enormous pull toward that. And I think, oddly, dangerously, it's a pull no matter what our personality is, right? So some of us, you know, are kind of Eeyore types. That's certainly what I am, which is, you know, it's never is the glass half full or half empty. It's how much poison is there in whatever water is in that glass, right? The question is not half full or half empty, but what will kill me in it, right? And then others of us are optimistic. You know, we are, and that's more like my wife, right, who's, every glass is, not only half full, but also filled up with the elixir of of joy, right? Which is wonderful, right? And we we balance each other out or repel each other like reverse magnets, either way. The point is, I think we can be drawn to this magical thinking about Jesus kind of no matter what our personality is and no matter what our experience is. And some of us are drawn to it in ways that make us really presumptuous and arrogant. If we're not careful, we're drawn into this belief that we will make life what we want it to be because we have faith in Jesus, we have the power of the Spirit, and we can force life to fit what we want it to be. And some people are lucky enough to think that it's actually working for them. Those people are, in, for me, insufferable. I have to pray through, go to confession every week about those people, right? Those, those people who are always certain that the reason their life is going swimmingly is because of how much faith they have when really it has to do with luck and indifference. They're just not noticing the wrong that's happening around them because they've become cold to it, right? But there are others of us, and this again is a temptation for me, 
And that is, we can be drawn to this in ways that lead to despair. That why isn't God doing more in my life? Why isn't God fixing what's going wrong? And it can lead to this place in which instead of becoming presumptuous and arrogant, we can be despairing, overwhelmed. Our faith can be crushed by the fact that our lives are not aligning with what we think it should be, and we don't understand why God isn't making it happen. So the problem with magical thinking is that it assumes that there is this relationship with God, this relationship with Jesus, in which either he's doing what we cannot, and so should make our life what we want it to be, or we're doing everything he did, and so we should be able to make our life what we want it to be. And it is cut off from the actual mystery of what God is doing. In, in that account, right, you remember the old refrain in church, God is good, God is good. And there is a way in which that is a confession of faith. But it, it can be a way of simply saying whether or not we like the way our lives are going. Right? If I say God is good and what I really mean is things are going well for me, that's not a confession of faith. Right? That's just an admission that I like that I won the lottery, or I like that my team won, or I like that your team lost, or whatever it is that brings me joy. Right? But a confession of faith is that in spite of what seems to be happening, I trust that God's goodness is at work. It's one thing to say God is good when your bank account is flush, your body is healthy, your friends are delighting in you, your children are well-behaved. It's another thing to say that God is good when you can't pay the bills and your friends have turned against you and you're sick and dying, right? That latter one is a confession or can be a confession of faith in a God who in spite of how things seem to be, I trust, I cling to the confession that God is good. Do you hear that difference? So a, a Christian way of living in the world is to shun magical thinking. Jesus is gonna do what I cannot do and make my life what it wants to be. Or I can do everything Jesus did and I'll make my life what it wants to be. Instead, we think mysteriously, God is working his good in my life no matter what happens. No matter what the outcome of my life is, in terms of sight, what you can see, what you can assess, I'm trusting that God is at work mysteriously in me. So that the relationship to God is not so much like a surrogacy, he's doing what we cannot and then gives us the reward, and it's not like he's the midwife while we do the work, he's coaching us through it. It is more like the mother-child relationship itself. God is being formed in you and you are being formed in God mysteriously all the time, no matter what's happening around you. There are two texts that I think, I'm not gonna take a lot of time to work through these, but I encourage you to study on your own, both in Galatians as a starting point for thinking about the mystery of our relation to God. The first one is Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Nonetheless, or nevertheless, the life that I live, I live in Christ. Or Christ lives in me. Think about what he's saying here. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life that I live, I live in the faithfulness of the Son of God. I'm crucified with Christ. Meaning, not that Jesus has done something I can't do, or Jesus has done something now that I should do, but that Jesus is happening in me. That Jesus' life is taking shape in my life, and my life is taking shape in his. He is in me, and I am in him. What has happened to him is happening to me. What is happening to me is happening to him. 
Later in Galatians, he says this to the church. Galatians 4, 19. He says, little children, I am in the pains of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you. I am in the pains of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you. Now, if you will sit with those two claims, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. And I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You will start to sense something of the mystery of what it means to be in Christ and Christ to be in you. It's not a case in which Jesus is doing things you can't or that Jesus is doing things you can. It's that Jesus is doing what only he can do in you as you are living the life you're called to live. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, tells us the kind of life we're called to live, a life of love, love that is patient, love that is kind, love that keeps no record of wrongs. And it's, it's striking, Dietrich Bonhoeffer observes, that Paul doesn't say, you should live like this. He doesn't say, if you are a person of love, you will live like this. You will be kind. You will be long-suffering. You will keep no record of wrongs. He describes love, but he describes love acting. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love endures. And he says, this is because love is the life of God happening in your life. As you live, God is living in you. And it's not you, it's God. But it is you because it's God. That's the mystery. There's no magic here. There's no God doing something you can't do and then counting it to your behalf. There's no you doing what God did because now you've become like God. It's that God is happening in you as you live the life you're called to live. Love is happening through you as you lean into that love. As you let Christ be formed in you, as you intercede for Christ to be formed in others. So with all that in mind, let's come back to the Luke 4 text. And I'm almost done. Jesus stands here in the synagogue. He takes the text that's given to him, the scroll that's handed to him. He finds this passage in Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, the, the deliverance of the captives, the opening of the blind eyes, and the year of God's favor. Then he sits down and begins to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. It's easy to miss kind of what the, the power of what Jesus has just done. Right? And if you're thinking magically, you're liable to think one of two things. One, you're liable to think this is Jesus letting everyone know he's God. He's standing up in the synagogue to say, this scripture is about me. And I am the one who is going to do all of these things for you. I am the one who's going to set the captive free, open the blind eyes, etc. Or if you think the other way, which is, again, still magical, you're liable to think Jesus is here telling you what you should be doing. You should be the one who's going out in the power of the Spirit to shape life into the image you have for it. But again, if we think mysteriously, what's being said here is something that's true of Jesus and us. At the same time, it's true of Jesus in me, and it's true of me in Jesus. But not in any way that is magical, not in a way that I can force to happen by wishing it to be so. It can only happen as it happens. It can only happen as I live it. I can't wish it into existence. I can't will it into existence. I can't obey enough. I can't be devout enough. I can't intend it intensely enough. 
It simply has to happen in that mysterious way that a child is formed in the womb and then born. It has to happen. There's no magical inroads, no shortcuts to it. I heard a story yesterday about Roger Moore. You remember he played James Bond. And in, the, in this story, which is wonderful, I don't know if it's true, I hope it's true. It's, it's true even if it's not true, if you know what I mean. Roger Moore is in the air, airport and there's a little boy who's six or seven years old who sees him and thinks it's James Bond and says to his grandfather, that's James Bond, can you get me an autograph? And so his grandfather, who doesn't know anything about James Bond, says, sure, goes over to Roger Moore and says, hey, this is my grandson, he'd like your autograph, would you, would you mind doing that? And Roger Moore says, no, 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 mind at all, and he signs the back of the ticket for the boy. And the boy comes back with his grandfather to the seat, just smiling, lit up. He looks at the ticket and realizes it doesn't say James Bond. <laughs> and he shows his grandfather, he says, what, what is this? This isn't James Bond. And the grandfather says, I think that's Roger Moore. Let's go back. So the grandfather takes the boy over to Roger Moore and says, listen, he thought he was getting James Bond's signature. And Roger Moore smiled and said, oh, okay. And then he called the boy over and asked the grandfather to step back. And he says to the boy, listen, you're right, I am James Bond, but I can't sign my name is James Bond because then the enemy will know that you've been with me. So let's just keep this between us. I, we're going to say Roger Moore, but you and I know, but don't tell anybody. So the boy goes back to his grandfather, and the grandfather said, did he fix it? And he's like, no, 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 I was wrong. So here's the thing. 30 years later, or roughly 30 years later, that same boy is working in a studio, and Roger Moore is there being interviewed. And he goes up to him to tell him about that story. Hey, when I was a little kid, I saw you in the airport, and you signed this, and he tells him the story. And he's telling this in a room, you know, filled with people. And they're all like, oh, that's so sweet. And Roger Moore's like, I'm sorry, I don't remember that. But that is so wonderful. I'm, I'm really glad that you had that experience. So at the end of the day, Roger Moore is leaving, headed to the airport. And as he passes that man now, he says, of course I remember you. But I can't tell you that in front of all of these people. Right? Now think, now think about what's happening in that moment, Right? There's an intimacy shared between them, right? That is awakening something in the boy and in the man, right? That binds them together. Nothing magical, but something mysterious connected by the shared awareness of a secret. That's actually as good an illustration as I can give you of what it's like to be in relation with Jesus. So notice what happens here in the synagogue. He stands up and says, today is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Sits down to say that. He reads the scripture standing, sits down to say, today is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And I, a few of them had to realize, oh, wait a minute. If the spirit of the Lord is upon you to set the captives free, we're the captives. If today this is being fulfilled, we're the captives. We're the poor. We're the blind. And then, if they sit there just a little bit longer, it dawns on them, or we're the reason there are captives. We're the reason he's come, not because we're the poor, but because we've made others poor and kept them poor. We're the reason there are those who are blind, who cannot see. 
The year of the Lord's favor is here either because I am poor and therefore I'm being delivered into his riches or because I've kept others poor and he's going to deliver them. But in that moment of awareness, they come into that intimacy, that shared secret of this is how I relate to Jesus. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is the Old Testament reading for the day, Nehemiah and Ezra are rebuilding Israel, the infrastructure of Israel after the exile. And in this particular passage, which I won't take time to read, they're standing and reading long passages from the Torah, from the law of Moses. The Levites are reading in turn, and they're just reading passages from the law, and the people are weeping. The people are weeping. And Nehemiah says, we have to stop. You should not be despairing. The Levites say, do not despair, but go home. Go your way. Eat rich food and drink sweet wine. I'm sure it was not alcoholic, but I'll let you fill that in. Eat rich food and drink sweet grape juice. For this is the day of the Lord. This is a holy day in which you should rejoice and not despair. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the text says they went home and they ate rich food and drank sweet non-alcoholic wine and they gave portions to those who had nothing because they understood the words that had been said to them. And again, we have a Roger Moore-like secret. When they just heard the words of the text, what they heard was judgment. We will never live up to that. That's magical thinking and it crushed them. They started to weep. But Nehemiah knew the Lord. And he knew that when you feel that pressure, like why can't I live up to the standard God has set for me? Why can't I have the life I want for myself? When you feel the pressure of condemnation, why can't I meet the standard? Why can't I have what I think I should have? It will bring out of you sorrow. Not godly sorrow, but soul-wrenching sorrow. Despair. And what you need to hear, what Jesus wants you to hear is, this is my day. You don't need to weep. This is a day to go home and eat rich food and drink sweet wine. Give to those who have nothing because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I heard that verse all my life growing up and I don't know how you heard it, but I always heard it this way. If you will learn how to be joyful, you'll have strength. You see how that's magical? If I can figure out a way of generating enough joy in my life, then I'll be powerful. So whatever difficulty I'm facing, I've got to find a way of generating that kind of joy so that I have the power to overcome whatever I'm facing. But that is magical thinking. You can't generate joy. What's being said is something far more intimate. What's being said is that the joy of the Lord is yours umbilically. You're the baby in the womb. And the joy of the Lord is the joy he has in you and the joy the Father has in him. And when you realize that, when you realize that the mystery is God's life is happening in you, you don't have to make anything happen. You actually become the site of God's action for others. It's when you realize the secret you share with him is that his life is your life 
that you become his life for others. And in this pandemic, this is what we have to learn. If we think magically, we're waiting on something outside of us to fix the problem. It isn't going to happen. Or we're waiting to figure out how to generate enough faith and strength and joy in our own life to overcome it. It isn't going to happen. But God is God. And God is in you. And you are in God. And when you realize the secret is his joy is yours, like the mother's life is the baby's, then you can be at peace. And when you are at peace... You will infect people around you with that same peace. This is the promise of the Lord.